Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Come Follow Me Insights from Book of Mormon Central. Today, Alma 53 through 63. So if you look at Alma 56, and actually throughout the Book of Mormon, you have the phrase, and it came to pass. In fact, if you turn to page 350 and just look at the beginning of many of the verses, you'll see the phrase, and it came to pass. Now, we could have talked about this at the beginning of the Book of Mormon year. We just decided to talk about it now. I want to share several perspectives of why this is one of the most important phrases in the Book of Mormon. Let me share a couple perspectives. First of all, just the literal perspective. And it came to pass. Not, and it came to stay. Not, and it came to linger forever. It just came to pass. Whatever suffering you're dealing with right now, it comes to pass. It comes for the purpose of passing. Everything we experience in this life will pass on by. Eventually, we will be brought back into God's presence. All of our suffering will be but for a moment. So when I see this phrase, I take comfort that this too shall pass. Another thought. The phrase, and it came to pass, if you translate it back into the ancient Hebrew, that phrase is actually the engine of the narrative. So imagine you want a car to go a little faster. You put your foot on the pedal and rev off. How in a narrative does a storyteller tell you that the, the action is moving forward and not just to linger on, on any one single scene? In ancient Hebrew, they would use this phrase. Today, if you think about a good action film, one of the ways you know it's fast action is there's lots of editorial cuts like, Every couple of seconds, there's a different angle or a different view of what's going on. In some ways, this is what the phrase, and it came to pass, does. It pushes the narrative forward. It tells you, I got to keep reading. There's more that's happening. It's intended to encourage you to realize there's a lot of action going on in the narrative to drive you forward in the storytelling. Okay. Now, this other idea may be a little bit speculative, but here's another thought I'd like to share, that the underlying Hebrew phrase, and it came to pass, comes from the same Hebrew word that makes up the Hebrew word for God. We know that word as Jehovah. Um, more appropriately in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. And why I think this is significant is the word Yahweh is the present tense of the Hebrew verb to be. There is no other word, actually, the word to be is never used in Hebrew in the present tense, ever, except the name God. You can use the future tense of to be or the past tense, but only present tense is fully occupied only by God, the self-existing one, the one who brings about all things. And how this connects, is, and it came to pass, is kind of like the past tense of the verb to be, which basically 
What I see it as meaning is it is Jehovah, our God, Jesus Christ of the Old Testament, who brings to pass all things, even our salvation. So whenever you happen to see this phrase, you might think of it literally like hey, everything in life will pass on by, or you might realize this is helping to drive forward the narrative, and it's a very powerful way to tell a story, at least in the ancient world. But significantly, it can remind us that God is the self-existing one who brings to pass all that is good in our salvation. All right, let's just use the map for a minute to paint a picture of where we are as we open up Alma 53. So if you notice on the map, we've lost all of the cities on the eastern uh, seacoast of Zarahemla, and we've lost four of the cities on the southern border with uh, the Lamanites. You've lost Manti, Zeezrom, Cumani, and Antipara. Pretty rough situation for these Nephites to be facing. So, as you analyze this struggle, Captain Moroni, like we mentioned last week, Captain Moroni does, doesn't focus on every single city at once. He focuses on one. And uh, once he has retaken Mulek, he then uses all of the prisoners that he's uh, acquired in those battles, and at the beginning of chapter 53, he puts those prisoners to work in fortifying the city of and the, the land of Bountiful. In those first three or four verses of chapter 53, they're causing this huge breastwork of timbers and the, the big ditch round about the land or the city of Bountiful to be built. Then he makes an interesting comment. Look at verse 5. This city became an exceeding stronghold ever after, and in this city they did guard the prisoners of the Lamanites. Isn't that fascinating? It's Lamanite prisoners who build up this city and make it this exceeding stronghold ever after. Now look at the second half of verse 5. Now Moroni was compelled to cause the Lamanites to labor because it was easy to guard them while at their labor, and he desired all his forces when he should make an attack upon the Lamanites. I could be dead wrong on this, but it seems to me that if we apply the Book of Mormon to our own life as a handbook for how to wage our own battles against the forces of darkness and the forces of evil, both in the unseen and in the seen world, that if we spend less time being idle, then it's easier to guard those forces that are part of our character, those, those uh, enemies within. If we stay active, it's easier to guard the natural man and the natural woman when we're actively building fortifications of faith and serving people than it is when we're sitting idle. One little uh, thing to, to consider as we move as we move into this into this incredible block of scripture. So notice verse eight. It came to pass that the armies of Lamanites on the West Sea south, while in the absence of Moroni on account of some intrigue amongst the Nephites, which caused dissensions among them, had gained some ground over the Nephites, insomuch that they had obtained possession of a number of the cities in that part of the land. 
we talked about that before, those four cities on the south that are listed later on. Notice also verse 9, thus because of iniquity amongst themselves, yea, because of dissensions and intrigue amongst themselves, they were placed in the most dangerous circumstances. Brothers and sisters, the message here to me is the, the enemy to really watch out for is not the Lamanites. Yes, that you've got to you've got to be aware of those external forces, but the real enemy in these war chapters consistently is the enemy within. It's the enemy that is leading to dissensions that allows this weakening of my defenses that then makes me susceptible to those outward influences. Hence the need to stay on guard at the inner vessel before we're worrying about what everybody else is doing wrong or, or how to protect ourselves from everybody else. Perhaps the best question to ask is, what is in my character that I need help with from the Lord to fortify to make sure that it doesn't weaken my outer forces and make me susceptible? People might think this sounds a little simplistic, but there is deep power and wisdom in simple things as we learn in the Book of Mormon. The Ten Commandments can be summarized by two statements. Love God, love your neighbor. If these two things were taking place here in the Book of Mormon, would all these wars have happened? No. And these are actually the, <laughs> these are the fundamentals. And so when we, as Tyler's talking about, look at ourselves and say, how well am I doing at seeking to love God, and how well am I doing at loving others? And to make it a little personal, I think I'm usually pretty good at this. But this one, I've often talked to God like, you know, if you could just change my neighbors a bit more, it would be easier to love them. And usually, the change that I'm expecting my neighbors is actually first change in my own heart that I need to be more open, well, not necessarily open, but more empathetic and understanding about other people and their weaknesses. But to get back on topic here, we can look at our own society today, and the problems we have in our society fundamentally come down to how well are we as individuals loving God and loving our neighbor, and we see the consequences in the Book of Mormon of what happens when people don't do one or don't do both of those things. So now you have this group of anti-Nephi-Lehi's, the, the people of Ammon they've been called, who were formerly Lamanites, who now had been moved from Jershon over to Melech. Captain Moroni at the beginning of this war saw the, the struggle coming and so he, he relocated them to Melech. Let me, let me just set the stage here for a minute. It was roughly, we don't have an exact time, but it's give or take one year, it's, it's been about 13 years ago when the entire group for the first time back in Alma chapter 24 buried their weapons deep in the earth and made a covenant to God, saying we will never pick up these swords again. Thirteen years previous, hmm, and over a thousand of the men died, which means now you have the next generation, these boys that have grown up, who did not enter into that covenant. They were too young at the time. Or 
perhaps some have been born after. We don't know their exact ages of the people who made covenants, and we don't know the exact ages of the stripling warriors. What we know that is in chapter 53, starting in verse 16, it gives us some descriptions of these, these boys. Behold, it came to pass that they had many sons who had not entered into a covenant that they would not take their weapons of war to defend themselves against their enemies. Therefore, they did assemble themselves together at this time, as many were, as were able to take up arms, and they called themselves Nephites. And they entered into a covenant to fight for the liberty of the Nephites, yea, to protect the land unto the laying down of their lives. Yea, even they covenanted that they would never give up their liberty, but they would fight in all cases to protect the Nephites and themselves from bondages. You'll notice the generation before them had covenanted, we will not fight. Now this generation covenants, we will fight, we will lay down our life. This generation hasn't been raised in, in war, in learning how to fight, in learning how to kill, in learning how to delight in the shedding of blood like generations before them had in their uh, genealogy charts. These, the, these boys come from a long line of ferocious and bloodthirsty people based on their own descriptions of themselves. The question is, how many of them have spent any time with their dads or their brothers, their older brothers or their uncles or grandpas, learning all of the insides and outsides of how to fight and how to kill and how to be violent? Chances are some of these boys have never really been trained at all because this just isn't part of their culture. That generation above them has left it off. And with a thousand plus of the men having been killed, there's, there's got to be at least a number of these boys who were raised without a dad in a single-parent home by only a mother. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but they sure put a lot of emphasis on their mothers, as we're going to see later on in the lesson. Notice verse 20, they were all young men, and they were exceedingly valiant for courage and also for strength and activity. But behold, this was not all. They were men who were true at all times in whatsoever thing they were entrusted. Yea, they were men of truth and soberness, for they had been taught to keep the commandments of God and to walk uprightly before him. That is what our world is missing today, is people who learn the basic, all of the commandments of God, like Taylor said, can be summed up in these two. Jesus did that. This is the law and the prophets. The heavens looking down at this earth Oh, how refreshing it would be if, if more and more and more they could see people who are exact in keeping these commandments of God, true at all times, exceedingly valiant for courage and strength to stand up for, for what is right. And so then in verse 22 it says, It came to pass that Helaman did march at the head of the, his 2,000 stripling soldiers to the support of the people in the borders of the land on the south by the West Sea. So, on the map, it puts us down uh, in this southern, southwest uh, corner of the land of Zarahemla. Now, we'll pick up the Stripling Warrior story in chapter 56. We put it aside for a moment to talk about this interim uh, of what's happening between Amaron and Moroni, because in chapter 54, you open up with Amaron having sent a message to Captain Moroni saying, hey, let's exchange prisoners, and Moroni then says, yeah, I'll write a letter. 
So he writes this letter to, uh, to Amron, the brother of Amalekiah. <clears throat> In here, he, he basically says it like it is. From his, from his view of this world and of the injustice that's happened with Amalekiah coming in and destroying so many lives, he has no patience for what Amaron's trying to do. There's nothing good in Amaron's cause here, and Captain Amaron makes that very clear. Look at verse 7, yeah, I would tell these things if ye were capable of hearkening unto them. Yeah, I would tell you concerning that awful hell that awaits to receive such murderers as thou and thy brother have been, except ye repent and withdraw your murderous purposes. It's, you can sense some, some sarcasm and some frustration in, in Moroni's words here. I, I would tell you these things if you were capable of hearkening unto them, but it's almost like, you're so far gone, I th I'm probably just wasting my time here, but I'll, I'll try. Look at verse uh, 11, but behold, it supposeth me that I talked to you concerning these things in vain, or it supposeth me that thou art a child of hell. Therefore, I'll close my epistle. Verse 13, behold, I am in my anger and also my people. Ye have sought to murder us. People have, some people have tried to kind of make fun of Captain Moroni being so um, negative. The reality is, is Captain Moroni has been fighting for his life and for freedom <clears throat> and for his religion and for his people and for his land, and he's watched thousands dying around him. He's probably wounded. He's going to die at age 43. He, he, this is a rough life, and he's calling it like it is when he's, when he's writing this letter. Well, Amaron gets the epistle, shocker, verse 15, he was angry. Look at verse 16. He says partway through, Behold, I will avenge his, Amalekiah, his brother's, blood upon you, yea, I will come upon you with my armies, for I fear not your threatenings. Now check out 17. For behold, your fathers did wrong their brethren, insomuch that they did rob them of their right to the government when it rightly belonged to them. Hmm, that's odd. Your fathers robbed the right of leadership and the government from their brothers to whom it did rightly belong. If you look at the date for chapter 54, it's somewhere around 63 BC. So once again, Amaron here is calling up perceived wrongs that occurred 530 some odd years ago. Ah, that's interesting. His brother Amalekiah just a few years previous to this, went down to the land of the Lamanites and through intrigue and devilish deception killed the Lamanite king and stole the ruling of the Lamanite people from him. Verse 17, for behold, your fathers did wrong their brethren 540 years ago, but my brother went and robbed the right of the government when it rightly belonged to the Lamanites. My brother took it. Now I've got that very same throne. The irony's thick. The irony is thick. Evil leaders often make it hard for people to see the truth by blaming others for what they, the wicked leaders themselves, have done. Yeah. Look at verse 18. Now behold, 
if you will lay down your arms and subject yourselves to be governed by those to whom the government doth rightly belong, then will I cause that my people shall lay down their weapons and shall be at war no more. Really? So if you just if you just surrender and and let the government be controlled by the Lamanites, aka me, Amron, who in verse 23, am a descendant of Zoram, he's not a Lamanite, he's calling himself a Lamanite, then, then we won't be at war anymore and we'll just all live in peace together. Really? Really? Notice uh, verse 24, now behold, I am a bold Lamanite. Behold, this war hath been waged to avenge their wrongs and to maintain and to obtain their rights to the government, and I close my epistle to, to Moroni. Just be careful as we move forward that we stay focused on seeking truth from good sources, aka inspired sources, the scriptures, the living prophets, inspired leaders, and trusted people around us rather than – there are a lot of voices out there and there are a lot of people making claims of truth and, and promises for what will happen if you do certain things we need to be careful. You'll notice that when there are these big differences of opinion that sometimes our solution is to fight. Now, in Captain Moroni's case, in Helaman and the Stripling Warrior's case, they have to fight. That is the world they're living in. That is, the, that is their solution, is call upon God's help to strengthen them in fighting physically, pushing back. But in a lot of our cultural battles today, Listen to these wise words from Martin Luther King, Jr. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. My good friend uh, in the state, John Manwaring, shared this quote with me yesterday, and it's stuck with me. This idea that when you see darkness, when you see hate, when you see conflict in relationships around you, the solution isn't to return darkness for darkness or hate for hate or conflict for conflict. It's to try to resolve, try to understand, and try to uh, move forward. We all deal with frustrating experiences in life, and we all deal with people with whom we disagree, okay? Hopefully not at the level of Moroni and, and Amron and Amalekiah. So, but there are a couple things you want to keep in mind. The world is full of people who have disagreements, and it's okay to have disagreements, but it's important to learn how to communicate well. And let me just share with you something I read in a book recently about how to communicate in really difficult circumstances. First of all, there's four rules. You have to first identify, uh, restate what the other person's thoughts are. Like, what, what do they actually think? What they've communicated something, restate it to them. And then you have to identify where you guys have agreement. In most cases, you can find something to agree with. You don't have to agree with people on everything, but there's probably something you agree on. So you have to identify what that agreement is, then state 
what you've learned from that person. Now that's hard, because that takes a lot of humility. I would rather state what people should learn from me, but that's not how the rule works. You have to state what you've learned from the other person. Then only after you've done all that can you then identify and describe where there's still disagreement. So if you're dealing with difficulties in interacting with other people, maybe over disagreements, try this approach. And really be thoughtful about it, restating what they've said, identifying where you have agreement, expressing gratitude for what you've learned from them and being clear about that, and then describing uh, what the disagreement is. Now let me just finish with one other thought. Well, if you read 50, Alma 54 again, you can see a lens through which to see the modern world, particularly the adversaries attack against us. The adversaries like Amaron, he wants to fight, the adversary wants to fight this eternal war to cause our extinction. And like Moroni, we have to be willing to defend the truth against the onslaught of the adversary. So if you're looking for a handbook for how to stand against the devil who would lie to you, this is the way to do it. And then finally, I want you to look at how people have identified themselves in this text. As Tyler pointed out, Amaron is making all these claims. He's a Zoramite, he's a Lamanite, and he, he, he identifies himself in a certain way, and therefore he has to act a certain way. Sometimes the problems we get into in this world is because of the identities that are forced upon us or that we take upon ourselves, and ultimately, what is the only identity that truly should define who we are? That we are children of God and followers of Christ, Christians. All other identities really should be ancillary, secondary, and definitely should not be the driving force for our actions. The identity that should drive forth our actions, our decisions, is the identity of being a child of God. Now, chapter 55, Captain Moroni says, I I'm not exchanging prisoners anymore with this guy. I know where they're keeping the prisoners, and so he does something different in 55 and ends up freeing all of the Nephite prisoners anyway. It's beautiful how he does that as you read through that one on your own. Now we go to 56 and pick up this story from the Stripling Warriors. Let's go to the map. So what you have here, just to, to give the lay of the land, you have the Stripling Warriors and their families have been relocated over to Melek. There's this city called Judea that seems to be a protection point for Minan and Zarahemla, all of the, the lands and regions to the north. And below Judea, you have these four cities that have been taken over in the south. So if you go to chapter 56, verse 14, it says the land of Manti, or the city of Manti, and the city of Zeezrom, and the city of Cumani, and the city of Antipara. Now these are the cities which they possessed when I arrived at the city of Judea. So he finds Antipas, the leader of the Nephite forces at Judea, and his men are, are stressed out because they're looking at these four cities to the south and realizing we're in trouble. So Antipas, together with Helaman, they come up with this great plan. They say, okay, let's use a strategy, a stratagem. So in verse 31, it says, 
We're going to march near the city of Antipara as if we were going to the city beyond in the borders by the seashore. We don't know the name of that city, so I've simply labeled it City by the Sea over here on the, the west. So this was a pretty simple strategy that they came up with. We're going to take the stripling warriors, we're going to march them close by, close enough to be clearly seen by the people in Antipara, and they're going to go by as if they're headed out to that city by the sea. The large army, the biggest army of the, the Lamanites in that part of the land are in Antipara. They're going to see this and they're going to say, hey, there, there go all those young men. Let's go get them. Easy pickings, right? So they're going to take this whole group. We're going to run away and then Antipas, you bring your bigger army behind and hopefully we'll be able to to get this huge army away from the city where we can then somehow circle back and take the city. So it works. The, everything works exactly as, as planned, and they turn northward, right? Now look at verse 36. It came to pass that we did flee before them northward, and thus we did lead away the most powerful army of the Lamanites, yea, even to a considerable distance, and so now they're running, and they're looking back, and here comes this huge army, and behind them is Antipas, and everybody's just running northward. That night, they camp in the morning, they wake up, the Lamanites are pursuing them, so the stripling warriors wake up, warriors wake up, and they run northward again. And we run all that day. It's just a big cross-country event. They just keep running, 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 running. They camp that night. The next morning, they wake up, the Lamanites are upon them, they take off running again. They're in the morning of the third day. When all of a sudden, partway through the morning, they stop and they look behind them and the Lamanites aren't chasing them anymore. And thus begins one of the most amazing sections of the war chapters, in my opinion, for, for, for my, from my perspective. Look at verse 43. And now, whether they were overtaken by Antipas, we knew not. But I said unto my men, Behold, we know not but that they have halted for the purpose that we should come against them, that they might catch us in their snare. Therefore, what say ye, my sons, will ye go against them to battle? By the way, I just have to say this. Here's Helaman, a Nephite. Here are all of these Lamanite descendants who now consider themselves Nephites and he's calling them my sons. I love that. We don't know what all the implications of the Lamanite-Nephite race were, for sure, but Helaman doesn't see that. He sees sons of God sitting in front of him, and he's claiming them as, as his adopted sons. I love that. Notice his question, will you go against them to battle? Verse 45, and now I say unto you, my beloved brother Moroni, that never had I seen so great courage, nay, not amongst all the Nephites. For as I had ever called them my sons, for they were all of them very young. I don't know their exact ages, but they're stripling warriors. They could be 12, 13, 14. Imagine deacons or teachers here. And stripling comes from the word like, like a strip. Imagine a strip of bark off of a tree. It's thin. It's not filled out. I'm not much of a stripling anymore. <laughs> so I'm what's still a stripling. <laughs> when I grow up, I want to be more like Tyler uh, Griffin. Yeah, it's pretty bad when you can turn sideways and disappear. Uh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
What's interesting is King David, shepherd boy David, after he defeats Goliath, Saul tries to figure out who it was, and he says, go find the stripling. So even young David, who went forth in courage to fight against the enemies of God, is described with the same word. And so we might think of these men, both in body and in spirit, like the young shepherd boy, David. Perfect. So, picking back up in 46, for they were all of them very young. Even so, they said unto me, Father, Notice he called them my sons, they're reciprocating. Father, behold, our God is with us, and he will not suffer that we should fall. Then let us go forth. We would not slay our brethren if they would let us alone. Therefore let us go, lest they should overpower the army of Antipas. One thing I love doing in my scripture reading and scripture study is to pay close attention not just to what the scriptures say, but to pause and reflect sometimes on what the scriptures don't say. In this case, what the what these stripling warriors didn't say was, let us go forth, we would not fight our brethren. They didn't say that. What they said here was, we would not slay our brethren. That's pretty bold. These boys who have never fought before saying, we wouldn't kill our brothers if they would leave us alone, but they won't, so we have to go and kill them. We're going to go kill them, Helaman. That's our intent. It's not. We're not going to go and get in a fight. That's, we're not just going to struggle with them. We're going to go kill them. That is faith. That's trust in God. Wow. They're not trusting in the, in the, the arm of flesh or in their skill with the bow and the arrow and the, the sword and the scimitar and the shield. They don't have a lot of experience with that, but they trust God, and so they intend to go back and slay their brethren. Look at verse 47, now they never had fought, yet they did not fear death, and they did think more upon the liberty of their fathers than they did upon their lives. Yea, and they had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. Notice that, God would deliver them. It's not the strategies, it's not their strength, it's not their, their leaders, it's God is going to be doing the delivering. And now why do they have such faith? Verse 48, they rehearsed unto me the words of their mothers, saying, we do not doubt, our mothers knew it. Years ago, I watched uh, an incredible production called Saints at War about members of the church fighting in World War II. There was one particular story in that, uh, in that series that has never left me. It's one that was told by Elder Neil A. Maxwell, who fought in World War II on the island of Okinawa, and he told the, the experience of when his group had taken a high position on that island and the enemy forces had a couple of uh, mortar launchers firing shells, trying to triangulate and get the exact location of this, this group of, of American soldiers, and he said the shells were landing closer and closer and closer until one hit just outside a camp, and he said they all knew it. They all knew, okay, they know right where we are, and now they're gonna, the next shells in are gonna destroy us. We're done. 
He said they all hunkered down in their foxholes uh, and nothing happened. It was odd, great miracle, but they survived. Elder Maxwell tells the story that uh, after the war, his aunt pulled him aside once and said, Neil, did you ever hear the story of what happened one night with your mother when you were off at war? And he said, no, and she then said, well, on one particular night, your mother and father said their prayers as was customary here in Utah and went to bed when a, a little while later, she said, your mother sat up, up in bed, grabbed your father by the arm and said, Clarence, Neil is in grave danger. We need to pray now. They got out of bed and you can picture it. You can picture this mother a half a world away, time zones away, who's pouring her heart out to God in behalf of her boy. Elder Maxwell then emotionally said, I did not doubt. My mother knew it. I don't think it was weather. I don't think it was a lack of armament. I don't think it was a pure mechanical misfunction of the weapons that caused th uh, this group to not be bombed. It's possible that it was the faith of one woman half a world away and others like her. Which brings us back to our story of the stripling warriors. Their mothers had sent these young men, these striplings, off to war. Mothers who knew that these young men had never fought before. They had never been trained in war. They had never seen battle. And they send them off to war. You'll notice looking at the map, if you've been on a three-day journey uh, leaving Judea and then you're on the morning of the third day running for your life that whole time, that puts you somewhere up here fairly close to Ammonihah across the, the wilderness area from Melech, where all these moms and these families are. I don't know, and we can't prove this, but something, something in my soul says that those mothers in Melech this morning of this battle were not just sitting around having a quilting bee or having a vacation. Something tells me that there were a lot of moms that morning pouring their heart out to God in behalf of their young sons, pleading with him to strengthen them. Something also tells me that many of their uh, fathers and grandfathers and uncles and older brothers who maybe have passed on are possibly part of that battle as well because the Old Testament is filled with stories of help from the other side, from people who do know how to fight, who there, there seems to me that this, that the numbers and what happens here, it's beyond mortal explanation. It has to be miraculous because they come down into this battle and sure enough, Antipas is dead. Many of the chief captains of this of the, the Nephite army is dead, <clears throat> and the Lamanites are, are winning when all of a sudden here come these 2,000 stripling warriors from behind, turn that Lamanite army around, 
and they fight with fury. And you'll notice at the end, once they've won and the Lamanites have surrendered, verse 56, behold, to my great joy there had not one soul of them fallen to the earth, yea, and they had fought as if with the strength of God. Yea, never were men known to have fought with such miraculous strength, and with such mighty power did they fall upon the Lamanites that they did frighten them, and for this cause did the Lamanites deliver themselves up as prisoners of war. <laughs> These are young men who've never fought, and you've got grown veteran men who've lived their whole life entrenched in warfare who are saying, whoa, I give up, I give up, I've never seen this kind of strength. There's something miraculous happening there. Now, there are a lot of different kinds of battles going on today, most of which don't involve swords and shields and bows and arrows. But we have family members, we have loved ones, we have people on this planet who are engaged in all kinds of battles. As we turn to God to plead with him to help us win those battles in all of their formats, and as mothers and fathers plead for heaven's power to be called down, for angelic help to be brought into the lives of their children, their grandchildren, siblings, and in some cases even parents and grandparents where they're the ones who are struggling. As we pray for this divine aid to come, I believe that this story can become more reflective of our world around us today. So as we finish one miraculous battle and turn the page over to chapter 57, we see another coming, coming our way. We get 60 more of the younger brothers of these 2,000 stripling warriors, so now we're at 2,060, and in chapter 57 you get this, this additional battle um, taking place. Look at verse 19, but behold, my little band of 2,060 fought most desperately, yea, they were firm before the Lamanites, and they did administer death unto all those who opposed them. Uh, look at verse 21. <clears throat> Yea, they did obey and observe to perform every word of command with exactness, yea, and even according to their faith it was done unto them. And I did remember the words which they said unto me that their mothers had taught them. Don't ever underestimate the power of what takes place in a mother-child relationship, those words of faith that infuse those children, even if those children struggle for, for years or even decades, that mother's love and that mother's faith is real <clears throat> and it's powerful. Jump down to verse 27. Now this was the faith of those of whom I have spoken. They are young and their minds are firm and they do put their trust in God continually. Have you ever noticed in scriptures the contrast between talking about a mind being firm and a heart being the opposite. A hard heart, a firm heart is never a good thing in scriptures. It's always a soft heart, but it's never a soft mind. It's never a, just a completely open to every idea and every wind of doctrine that blows kind of a mind. 
I think Helaman has described for us here through these stripling warriors what it means to have a firm mind. Back in verse 21, they observe to perform every word of command with exactness, there's firmness, they're, they're connected with God, they know the commandments, and they're firmly rooted in the rock of our Redeemer, and as opposed to saying, hey, I don't have to just trust in God continually, I can trust in the arm of flesh, I can trust in the philosophies of the world, every wind of doctrine that blows is not a firm mind. Um, it's interesting if you do a word search in your scriptures on the word mind and then look at the words that the scriptures and the prophets associate with mind, it's never soft, it's never open in, in, the, in the same way as the world would preach it. It's, it's a firmness, it's a steadfastness, it's an exactness in being obedient to the commands of God. Yeah, this is a really powerful insight. So we work at the university, and it is true, we often tell students, you want to have an open mind, but I think what we're really trying to encourage our students is to have an open heart, because if you have the firm foundation, that's why I don't build, that doesn't that look… That looks like a firm foundation. If you are solid in the truth of God, you can have an open heart to empathize with other people and understand their circumstances, to at least understand how they view the world. But the idea to have an open mind means that you actually no longer have a center. We're talking from the scriptural standpoint. And there's this false idea in the world today that all opinions are created equal. And it just isn't true. There are some things that are true, and there's some things that aren't. And there's actually some gradations of things that are mostly true and somewhat false. But if you center on what you know to be true, that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that God loves us. I'm going to put Jesus in here because that's who we're focused on. That we should love God, love our neighbor. We can have an open heart to understand other people who may be struggling with those truths, but we would hope that in this time of world where there's just so much information in the world that you remember the most important saving truths and hold on to those and don't simply be led away by every wind of doctrine. Sure, it's great to learn. Tyre and I spend a lot of time teaching and learning, but make sure that you are founded on truths that matter, the values that matter. And again, loving God, loving your neighbor, and if you keep those at the center, Jesus Christ, it's pretty hard to be led away by the false philosophies of men that are quite flattering, and if they're spoken enough and loudly, many of us feel like we, they must be true. But the still small voice recommends to us that we stay with Jesus. Okay, so as we finish up chapter 57 and the miraculous uh, deliverance of these stripling warriors in that chapter, you open up 58 and you'll notice that their problems and their struggles don't go away, kind of like life. You miraculously overcome one challenge, one adversity, one trial of your faith, only to then get ready for whatever's coming next. And in this case, the struggle is here are these stripling warriors with far too few people, 
and far too few provisions to defend all of the cities that they've taken back, and they're watching the Lamanites in the, the opposing cities here getting reinforced and filled with provisions, and it's frustrating, and they know it's just a matter of time before they're going to be overrun. Look at chapter 58, verse 10. What do you do when you're looking at opposition mounting in front of you and you feel hopeless? You, you, you don't have anywhere to turn. Nobody's helping you. Look at verse 10. Therefore, we did pour out our souls in prayer to God that he would strengthen us and deliver us out of the hands of our enemies, yea, and also give us strength that we might retain our cities and our lands and our possessions for the support of our people. Their prayer isn't about their own life alone, it's in support of the people. Look at verse 11, yea, and it came to pass that the Lord our God did visit us with assurances that he would deliver us, yea, insomuch that he did speak peace to our souls and did grant unto us great faith and did cause us that we should hope for our deliverance in him. This verse is so relevant so applicable today in our world as much as it ever was for these uh, stripling warriors back then or anybody else in the history of time. God is powerful. He will speak peace to our mind. You can be in the midst of incredible opposition and still feel okay, still feel the peace that only comes from heaven and that hope for deliverance. So, verse 12, we did take courage with our small force which we had received and were fixed with a determination to conquer our enemies and to maintain our lands and our possessions and our wives and our children and the cause of our liberty. And they went forth in their might against the Lamanites. So, that chapter finishes with success. There, there are many wounds. Um, there are a lot of people who get killed on all sides, but Miraculously, these stripling warriors, they, their faith and their trust is just miraculous in, in the way that the Lord is delivering them. Now, to finish off this, these uh, stories, chapter 59, Moroni is finding out from Helaman that they're not getting the reinforcements from the government as needed, so Moroni's pretty upset, and in chapter 60, he writes a letter to Pahorn, the chief judge, and in that letter he, he gives reasons for why he's angry and why he's, he's condemning the government. So read verse 3 and 4 and 5 uh, in verse – or sorry, in chapter 60. So you can see the context of why he, he uses such bold and forceful language in his letter to Pahorn who then responds in 61 with a, a statement that I'm it's totally fine, Moroni, I don't glory in all of the things that you're suffering through, but I've been displaced. I'm, I'm now in the land of Gideon. I had to leave Zarahemla because they've put a king on the throne. Look at chapter 61, verse 8. They have got possession of the land or the city of Zarahemla, they have appointed a king over them, and he hath written unto the king of the Lamanites, in the which he hath joined an alliance with him. In the which alliance he hath agreed to maintain the city of Zarahemla 
which maintenance he supposeth will enable the Lamanites to conquer the remainder of the land, and he shall be placed king over this people when they shall be conquered under the Lamanites. Huh, that's odd. Somebody who actually thinks that that the devil likes sharing his power. Do you think for a minute that Amaron's going to let somebody be the king over the Nephites if that person will help him win this battle? Uh, not very likely. Then in chapter 62, we, we have to go and fight against these kingmen in the center of the land again, and after that we then go and we're fighting against all the people, or all of the Lamanites in the rest of the region, and let's cut to the end. Go to chapter 62, verse 41. We've, we've pushed all the Lamanites finally out of all these cities that they've taken, and now you get this. But behold, because of the exceedingly great length of the war between the Nephites and Lamanites, many had become hardened because of the exceedingly great length of the war, and many were softened because of their afflictions, insomuch that they did humble themselves before God even in the depth of humility. Isn't that interesting? So you've got people who have this major trial that lasted many years, this war was terrible, and you had this separation. Many chose to become more softened in their hearts, while others became hardened in their hearts. This is the decision point. Trials and tribulations and hardships don't determine our response. They just provide an opportunity for us to make a response, to, to use our agency to act and in the process either grow or shrink, to either become more humble and submissive to the Lord and, and fill of his power and see of his strength, or to get more angry and bitter. Notice verse 42, it came to pass that after Moroni had fortified those parts of the land which were the most exposed to the Lamanites until they were sufficiently strong, he returned to the city of Zarahemla, and also Helaman returned to the place of his inheritance, and there was once more peace established among the people of Nephi. So that war did come to pass. It's gone, but the real question is, once the wars are past, once they're over, once the, the battle cries have died down, has it left us a better person or a bitter person? Have we become closer to God or have we grown more distant from God? Uh, so my recommendation would be using the Book of Mormon as a handbook for my life is to look at this and say, hmm, what are the battles that are raging that cause me to want to be angry or frustrated with heaven, and how can I shift that and now call in more faith and in more hope upon the Lord to bless me so that I can see his hand and those miracles in my battles, things that are happening that I could have never done alone that would then cause me to love the Lord more and become more like him. Chapter 63, after the war has ended, he tells us that uh, Moroni died in chapter 63, verse 3. 
uh, and he gives you the date. It's in the 30 and 6th year of the reign of the judges, and we can do the math. Moroni somewhere 43 years old. He's young when he dies. It was a hard life uh, for him and for all these people, and at that point, there are a whole bunch of people who leave. Verse 4, there were 5,400 men with their wives and their children departed out of the land of Zarahemla into the land northward. Verse 5, Hagoth builds a ship up in the borders of the land bountiful by the land desolation. He leaves, comes back, gets more ships built, leaves again, and they all go northward. And uh, thus, these, these war chapters come to a close, as we'll then turn our attention to Helaman. Know that when you came to this earth, I don't think you left heaven thinking, oh, I'm going to go down into a garden like Eden. This life was intended to be a test, which means it's a fallen world and you're in a body that has mortal problems, mortal tests and trials. And one battle after another after another comes our way. Our prayer is that we'll turn to God, trust him more fully, and love the Lord and be more exact in our obedience, more soft in our heart, more firm in our mind, and we'll move forward. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.